Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Baptism. If you have any questions on this topic, feel free to call me at 515-602-9655. If you would like a copy of today's show notes, email me at catholicken with that's catholic with a k at thefourpersons.com. Again, that's catholicken with a k at thefourpersons.com and the four persons is with a number four as opposed to spelled out four. So, baptism is the universal sacrament that unites all Christians, but there are a wide variety of views on baptism. Some Christian churches teach that Baptism forgives sins and makes you a member of the body of Christ, his church, as shown in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Matthew chapter 28, John chapter 1, Acts chapter 2 and 22, and 1 Peter chapter 3. Other churches teach that baptism is just an outward sign of your inward change of heart and that you have decided to be a Christian. Some churches teach that you should baptize your babies, and others teach that you have to believe before you can be baptized. So a baby has to wait until they're old enough to choose for themselves. Some churches teach that baptism has to be done with full immersion, commonly called dunking. Other churches teach that baptism can be done by immersion or pouring water or sprinkling. Some churches teach that baptism is only done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Other churches teach baptism is done in the name of Jesus only or in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. So first, let's talk about the definition of what baptism is. There's different forms of Christianity have different standards for baptism based on their interpretation of the word of God and the word baptism. The Orthodox churches insist that baptism needs to be done by immersion. Some Protestants also insist on immersion or dunking, but they also teach that baptism is just an ordinance done to obey Jesus and doesn't really do anything. Catholic Church allows baptism to be done by immersion in lakes, rivers, or pools. The Catholic Church also allows baptism to be done by pouring water over the head. The important thing is that water flows over the head three times in the name of the Trinity. 
In an emergency, anyone can baptize another person. However, it should normally be done by a deacon, priest, or bishop. God specified to Moses that the portable temple must have a large bronze basin for washing before moving to the more holy areas of the temple. The Israelites and Jews had many ceremonial washings for purification. They had the understanding that washing made you spiritually clean on the inside and physically clean on the outside. The term baptize does not mean immerse. Immerse. The word baptize translates the Greek word baptizo, not bapto. While bapto may mean to dip or immerse, baptizo does not refer to a mode, but to a process and an effect. While a baptism may include dipping or immersing, baptizo does not. In itself, mean to immerse. In passages such as Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, and Acts 8.38-39, for example, the Greek preposition translated into may be translated as to or toward or unto. The Greek preposition out of may be translated as from or away from. In Matthew 3.16, the verse doesn't say that Christ was submerged or how deep he went into the water. Scripture is actually silent on the matter. The oldest depictions of Christian art show Christ standing ankle deep in the Jordan while John the Baptist pours water over our Lord's head. An early Christian baptistry was found in a church in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Yet, this baptistry, which dates from the 2nd century, was too small and narrow to immerse a whole person. In Acts chapter 8, the Greek preposition EIS is used 11 times, but only once in verse 38. Is it commonly translated into? In verses 3, 5, 16, 25, 26, 27, and 40, it is best translated as two. When Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, he went to the water, dipped his hand into it, and sprinkled the eunuch, signifying, identifying him with the Messiah and his cleansing work. Cross-reference Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, a passage that the eunuch would have been reading. After Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people were baptized in Jerusalem. We find this in Acts chapter 2. Archaeologists have demonstrated that there was no sufficient water supply for so many to have been immersed. These people must have been baptized by pouring or sprinkling. Acts chapter 2 also tells us that baptism forgives sins, gives the Holy Spirit, and is for children and adults. Acts chapter 22 tells us that baptism washes away sin. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, baptism saves us. The Didache is the earliest Christian writing about church practices and was written around 70 AD. The Didache tells us that the preferred practice was to baptize in living, flowing water, like a lake or a river. 
The Didache also says that you can baptize in standing cold or warm water. The Didache also says that there, if there is not sufficient water for the preferred methods, water can be poured over the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Knowledge of the Greek words related to baptism, the Jewish practices of washing, and the early church prescribed methods of baptism are required to properly understand how to baptize and what it does. Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 28 and gave his authority to his church so that we would all know what to do until the end of the church age. Matthew chapter 28 is where Jesus tells the apostles to go out and teach everything he taught them and to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hey there, John. Are you there? Yeah, I'm just listening. How are you doing okay. this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for tuning in. It's always good to know that somebody's out so there. So let me... Let me make sure I got this straight. So I have to be baptized in an exact particular kind of way, but it doesn't really do anything anyway. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I just want to make sure I had that. Unless you're it. actually reading the Bible where it says baptism now saves you and washes away previous right. sin right. and gives you the Holy Spirit. Right. But, I've always found that that argument, though, perplexing from the uh, from the Baptists that – you have to be baptized by immersion. It has to be done this particular way, but there's no reason for it. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's just symbolic. Right. It's uh, pretty amazing that, you know, that they but have a know, proper form for va- baptism, but it doesn't do anything. You, you know, it, it just – one thing that I've discovered, Ken, is all of these things that we believe kind of like a web. They're, they're – Different doctrines are tied to different doctrines, and to understand one, you have to understand the others, and and you can't really understand baptism unless you understand the concept of grace. We have such a different understanding of the concept of grace. If I understood grace the way that they understand grace, then the idea of being saved by baptism would be completely alien. It wouldn't make any sense. So... They have to understand sanctifying grace in order to understand baptism, right? Right. And, you know, they – because they have that different understanding, you know, the whole thing starts coming apart when you compare it to the drive, to the Bible that uh, teaches Jesus' plan and the Jewish understanding. Um and that's the problem with, you know, Protestant theology. It's usually based on a few verses of the Bible that becomes the lens that they interpret everything else. Um, right. There's a guy that I have learned a lot from, Jim Papandrea, and he refers to, like, Catholic theology as, like, a divine sweater. It's all knitted together. And if you, you know, grab mm-hmm. one part of it, if you cut one part of it and start pulling, you know, the whole thing unravels. So Catholic theology yeah. is so and, intertwined. And and I think that's why they have such a difficulty with Mary, because everything that we believe about Mary is so tied together with, with all of these other doctrines about, about grace and, and, and all these other things that um, 
you know, I, I, I've had people, people have said, well, what, you know, why do you, why do you look at Mary instead of Jesus? And, and the way that I've answered that is, okay, I have a set of reading glasses right in front of me, Ken. And, and people could ask me, why are you looking at your glasses rather than looking at the screen on the computer? I'm looking through my glasses in order so that I can better see the screen on the computer. It, 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 there's no contradiction there. And it's, well, what does that have to do with Mary? Well, Mary said of herself, my soul doth magnify the Lord. So oh, I look at Mary as the magnifying glass through which I see Jesus. And Exactly. And all of this, all of this, comes apart, like you said, it all falls apart because they view salvation as something that Jesus does to us, whereas we view salvation as something that Jesus does through us, that there's that synergistic grace versus that monergistic grace. And like you said, you said it clearly, if you don't understand that, all of it comes apart. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, you know, if you pull Mary out of, you know, Catholic theology, you pull Jesus' humanity out of Catholic theology because Jesus' humanity to us through Mary. Right. And that's why, right. you know, we have identified Mary as the mother of God. <laughs> and, you know, Protestants have a hard time with that. <laughs> like, How could you be the mother of God? Well, here's here's why they have a hard time with this Ken, and this is this is the difference between knowledge and faith uh and, and I had a person told me bluntly well if I don't believe and understand it if 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 I don't see and understand something in the Bible, then I don't believe it. Well, you've just said that you have no faith that's what you've just stated i We can't comprehend the hypostatic union. We can't comprehend the Trinity. We can't comprehend eternity. These are things that are beyond the ability of our feeble human minds to comprehend. So all that we can do is understand the concept, believe in the concept, have faith in it. But if you think you're going to get your mind around it um, and comprehend it, there, there's no way. There's no way that we can comprehend how Jesus was fully human and fully divine at the same time. That, you know, I've heard, heard people say, well, that's impossible. Well, of course it's impossible. That's why it's called a miracle. Uh, right. Impossible is just a starting point for God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to, you know, we humans, you know, say that's impossible, but not impossible for God. <laughs> You know, right. We we can't limit God by what we can understand or what we think is possible. You know, it's impossible for and, us oh, to create the, way, the as, whole universe, but God did it. Yep. Yep. And as for your statement that at least somebody is out, out there listening, right now one of your shows is the highest ranked show that we have right now. So just letting you know there are people that are listening. And um and and we are growing in popularity. We are definitely the fastest growing uh, Christian podcast on Blog Talk Radio. And that's not bragging to say that. That's due to the hard work of people like you and, and William and Luke and 
Fred and Deb and, uh, you know, we've all been working very, very hard at this thing, making it work because we have such a passion for it. Um, everybody needs to know that Ken and I are not making any money off of this. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> we're spending money. Uh, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're doing this out of, out of, out of love for our faith and out of passion for our faith and out of passion for um, sharing what we have. Um, but I do take some, you know, some joy in the fact that it is bearing fruit. It is becoming successful, uh, which means that, you know, God's hand of blessing is, is upon it as long as we stay humble and worthy and obedient. Mm-hmm. We're doing, all doing what we can for the glory of God, not for ourselves. And I feel blessed to be a part of such a great team and to be asked to be part of this team. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm just a, a humble car restorer that happens to know stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the other the other thing that um, that we always get into when we talk about baptism, the other thing that we always have to explore is. Um, our Protestant brothers and sisters don't understand how uh, – they don't fully understand anyway how the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And they don't understand that everything that's in the old covenant is a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Especially, This is especially true with some of the – at the SDAs and some of the cults who believe that we're still under – you know, we're still under Sabbath. We're still under all these Old Testament things. And mm-hmm. this idea that, well, why are you baptizing babies? Well, we're following the model. <laughs> and the model said that the things in the Old Testament were shadows. So circumcision, circumcision was a shadow. And when was a, a, a baby boy circumcised? When he was eight days old. So... If infants were circumcised when they were infants, and baptism is the new circumcision or is the fulfillment of circumcision, logic would dictate that we would baptize babies, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was one of the questions that was, you know, brought up in one of the early church councils, uh, Council of Carthage, I believe, in 251 was, you know, whether you had to wait till the eighth day to baptize your babies um, following, right. you know, the practice of circumcision. And the decision of that, you know, it was a local council, but uh, it just shows that that was, it shows that they were baptizing babies for one thing and that they were, uh, you know, wondering if they had to follow like the Jewish practice of of circumcision on the eighth day or baptism on the eighth day. But the decision of that local council was, you know, you can baptize them, you know, as soon as you want. You don't have to wait until the eighth day. Right. But again, going back to what we said just a minute ago, if our understanding was like our Protestant brothers and sisters, that baptism is is just an ordinance, it's just something that we do as a sign of our, sign of our faith, well, then it wouldn't make sense to baptize infants. But since we do understand that there's something much deeper going on in baptism, that it is, mm-hmm. it's an outward sign of an invisible grace, uh, then we understand why uh, 
Well, why don't you wait till the baby is old enough to choose? That's a great idea. And what I'll do is I'll do the same thing about eating and drinking water and sleeping. I'll let the baby wait till the baby's old enough to choose that it wants to eat. That right. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 Mm -hmm. ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument. Um, You wouldn't deny a baby food. Well. Denying baby the grace of God is worse than denying it food. Exactly. And, you know, again, it goes back to that problem that, you know, they they don't actually have faith. They only have information that they read in the Bible, and it's got to be in the Bible before they can believe it. Uh, and in right. the Bible, you know, especially in the book of Acts, it talks about, you know, how people learn about Jesus and then they believe and then they get baptized. So they narrowly focus in on that part and it's like, well, see, these people believed and then they got baptized. But we have to understand that, you know, these were people that were coming to learn something new about the Christianity and then once they understood it, saying, "Yeah, I want to be a part of that," and to become part right. of that, you get baptized. It's the same thing. It's the same thing with married priests, married priests and married bishops. Well, of course, at the beginning there would be married priests and married bishops because, again, like you said, these people are being introduced to something new. Uh, but then, as that church evolved and grew. Uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, it would then decide what was the most prudent thing to do going forward and what was the most prudent way to run the church going forward. But it's it's the whole adage that I must see so I can then believe. No, 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 no. You believe so that you can then see. That's the exactly. way that it goes. Yep. And, uh, and, and, the, and the Bible gives us the formula. I mean, it, it the idea of sola scriptura is everything that that needs to be in the Bible that's necessary for salvation in the Bible. Well, actually, it is on some level. It's true because the Bible tells us to follow the church, and that's right. all that I need to know. Okay, mm-hmm. and once I understand that the church is the pillar and foundation of all truth, and what it binds on earth will be bound in heaven, and what it looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, then the only question that I have at that point is, okay, which church is is, is this talking about? Because I need to find out what that church is and follow that church. And, you know, a person once asked me, he, says, he, you know, he was trying to trap me. He says, he said, look, if you, were, if you were on a desert island and you could have either your church or your Bible, only one or the other, which would you choose? I would choose, I said, well, that's a no-brainer. I choose a church because then I get both. Exactly. <laughs> when I go when I go to mass, I I hear the Bible every time I go to mass. Okay, if I just have the Bible alone, well, then I don't get the sacraments. Then I don't get the Eucharist. Then I don't get confession. Uh, no, it's it, it's an easy decision for me to not have a physical Bible in my home. I I don't need that. I mean, I'm glad I have it, I read it, I love it, I enjoy it, but I could survive without it. I can't survive without the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's an easy decision. But when they say uh, the Bible is all I need, 
Well, the Bible itself tells you that that's not the case. Right. And, uh, the Bible doesn't say that we need to go by the Bible alone or that we should go by the Bible alone. And when you get the church, you get the Bible that the church assembled, too. It's, you know, it's all part of the <laughs> of the package. <laughs> right. And, and, and this, this doctrine of solo scriptures drives me crazy because um, – there's so many different doctrines that Protestantism has that you can kind of see why they believe it. They're wrong, but you can kind of see and understand why they believe it. Sola Scriptura is not one of those doctrines. It, it doesn't make any sense on any level. It breaks down logically. It breaks down historically. It breaks down biblically. There's really no way to support it. self-refuting nonsense because you can't have a fallible church give you an infallible canon of infallible scripture. That doesn't work. If you don't trust the church, it's it's like saying, hey, um, the chef is a homicidal maniac, but I'll take the soup. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it, 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 it's the same kind of logic. If you don't trust the chef, you're not going to eat there and claim how great the soup is and then give no credit to the chef. That's basically what we have here with with Sola Scriptura. Right, and Protestants try to get around with that, you know, by saying that, well, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, not those men. <laughs> but if we look at it historically, you know, like Paul wrote letters to different churches mm-hmm. and different people, um, but you know, basically he was. When he sat down to write those letters, he was not sitting down to, you know, say, okay, I'm going to be writing another book of the Bible today. (laughs) He was just writing a letter to that person or church, you know, explaining Catholic doctrine and, you know, why they should take his advice and things like that. Um, And and, and the other thing is, Ken, we don't know if he wrote Hebrews or not, mm -hmm. okay? So we'll set Hebrews aside for a minute and say that we do know there are 13 letters that we do know that Paul wrote. Every one of those letters by signifying that it was Paul that was writing the letter. He was very clear mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And, and because Paul wrote that, so much – because Paul wrote so much against you know the Judaizers that were pushing the works of the law, he – often is saying that, you know, the works don't save you. And Protestants uh, misinterpret that and think that, you know, that's all works, including baptism, doesn't save right. you. Um, right. But he was actually referring to the Jewish works of the law, like the ceremonial and kosher laws. Those don't save you anymore. Yeah. Anyone that understands logical fallacies knows that that's what's known as the equivocation fallacy when there are many ways that a certain word can be interpreted and you apply only one interpretation to all of the usages of that word. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. That people need to understand the Bible is fall from the sky in English. <laughs> it, it didn't just fall from a cloud in King James English. Uh, mm-hmm. The books of the Bible are translated from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and they're translated to Latin. 
Okay. So you, you by the time you're opening up your King James Bible, you're you're opening up a Bible that's gone through four translations. And there are certain things mm-hmm. that are lost sometimes in those four translations. For instance, you know there are thirty two different words that are translated to the English word kill. I wasn't aware okay. of that. No. And sometimes and and sometimes even the same word can be used in the same sentence and have two different meanings. I'll give you one example. Okay? After Jesus was found in the temple by Mary and Joseph, Mary says to Jesus, Son, how could you do this to us? Didn't you know that your father and I have been searching for you anxiously? In this case, father means who? Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. Okay. Jesus responds, why were you worried? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's the same It's the same Greek word that's translated both times. It's translated from the same Greek word both times. But obviously Jesus is referring to a different father than Mary is referring to. Exactly. And you have to understand tradition. You have to understand context in order to understand that. If you picked up a Bible for the first time, knew nothing about Christianity, knew nothing about the Christian faith, knew nothing about context, that sentence doesn't mean any any, any sense to you. Or you just would naturally conclude that Mary and we're talking about the same fathers, and then at that point you're thinking that somebody here has got multiple personality disorder or something. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the sentence make, the sentence makes no sense unless you understand the context. But here you've got two different words. The sola scriptura approach here doesn't work. You have to understand the context. You have to understand that Mary, when she says father, is referring to Joseph. And Joseph's not even actually Jesus' actual father. He's an adoptive father. He's not a biological right. father. So Mary's referring to Jesus' adoptive father as his father, and Jesus is referring to his heavenly father as his father. And this is both in the same sentence, Ken. Mm-hmm. It's in the same sentence. So, you know, it's the same argument that, that, that's used when they say, well, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Well, brother means one thing in this passage. It means another thing in this passage. For example, it tells us that uh, that James and Joseph were sons of Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Right. It tells us at the foot of the cross, it tells us at the foot of the cross that the mother of Jesus was standing there with her sister, Mary. Okay? So mm-hmm. if you interpret sister literally, you have to actually believe, if you believe that sister and brother and, and they always mean the same thing, you have to literally believe that Jesus' mother, Mary, who had a son named James and a son named Joseph, Mary also had a sister whose name was also Mary, who also had a son named James and Joseph. Uh-huh. <laughs> that would be the least, least uh, that would be the most unimaginative family in the history of families. 
<laughs> right. They just name all their kids the same thing. Every time mm-hmm. we have a daughter, oh, her name is Mary. If we have six daughters, they're all married. Uh, right. I think there was a boxer that did that, wasn't there? They named all his kids the same thing. Right. George Foreman, yeah. Named <laughs> all his mm-hmm. kids the same thing. But that way you only have to call one kid and you get all of them at the same time. Right. But it's absurd to interpret the passage that way. So obviously, okay, right. what is being said here? Well, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, was actually the sister of Joseph. It wasn't Mary's actual sister. It was Mary's sister-in-law. Right. But if you read the passage, it says it's her sister. So mm-hmm. they, if you divorce the church, this is the kind of this is the kind of mess that you continually find yourself in when you're trying to take these idioms of first-century Greek and translate them into into our modern. English, yeah. Um, and that's the thing, right, you have to understand the culture that the Bible was written in. And, you know, like the Jews didn't have a word for cousin. You had to explain, you know, how they were related through your father or mother or whatever. Um, so they would just call cousins, you know, brothers or sisters because, you know, the families live so close you know, you would walk into your cousin's house just like you'd walk into your parents' house. And, you know, they right. were so intertwined like that. And even now, um, like, people, Catholic Christians, you know, from the Mediterranean basin, you know, they understand that easily enough. And sometimes even, like, they'll refer to their neighbor using the word of their culture that, means that they actually share a common wall in their two houses, even though right. you know, there's a yard in between them, or they might even be down the street. But the word they use is a word that means that they share a common wall between the two houses. And right. But and if, if you, you don't know that about the Mediterranean cultures, you, you don't understand what they're talking about. Right. And if you imply a narrow interpretation to Scripture – then you always create problems for yourself. And this is why we've got 47,000 different Protestant denominations, because eventually your ideology runs into a brick wall and somebody says, well, it doesn't work, so I guess we'll go form another church. And, to, and, mm-hmm. and we'll finally be the church that gets everything in the Bible correctly. <laughs> okay, the right. first 47,000 got it wrong, but we're going to be the one that gets it right. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, when you hear these people say, well, Delphos always means brother. Oh, it does? It always means biological brother? Well, that's interesting because Paul said that Jesus appeared to 500 brothers. Hey, that's a big family. <laughs> i got to <laughs> right? be honest with you. <laughs> that's, that's Mary a big and Joseph family. must have really been busy. <laughs> uh, just, you know, um, I, I just can't imagine what preschool was like. <laughs> <Let's> just, <laughs> right? <you know. laughs> With a family like that, um, but I mean, it just it just you run into these absurdities, and and the thing about it is, it it all comes down to humility, Ken. It all comes down to humility, and that was mm-hmm. the biggest light that that came on for me is one day when I figured out I don't have to figure all this stuff out. I don't have to be a theologian. There's guys smarter than me that have already done the work for me. 
the Justin Martyrs, the Thomas Aquinas's, the, the John Chrysostom's, the, the St. Augustine's. I mean, uh, there's so many of these brilliant minds that have all done the work for me. All I need to go back and do is study the work that they did that shows us what all this stuff means. Oh, now I see. Now I see. There's no word in in Greek for to love less. There's no word that expresses that. Okay? Or there, there's there's no word in English what I, uh, that expresses the term in Greek that means to love less or to love to a lower degree. So the Bible translators translated it into hate. Well, then you read in Luke that he who does not hate his mother and father and brother and sister, even his own self, is not worthy of me. You can't take right. that passage literally. You can't attach a literalist interpretation. You're supposed to hate your own mother and father. No, you are to, to love them less than God. In other words, when you love your own family to the point you're willing to sin for them, that you're willing to sin for them. In other words, my family didn't feel like going to church today. Well, you know what? I want my family to be happy, so if they don't want to go to church, we won't go to church. No, 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 no. No. Get in the car. <laughs> you're going to church. That's it. It wasn't a request. <laughs> it was a statement. <laughs> you're getting dressed. You're getting in the car. You're going to church, period, end of story. Uh, right. That's true love. That's mm-hmm. true love. Um, as opposed to – If your kid to, says, now, like, I don't feel like, like – if your kid says, like, I don't feel like eating today, do you not feed them that day? <laughs> so, Right. Right. Oh, oh I, I don't want to eat this. I want to eat Kraft macaroni and cheese. Well, you can't eat Kraft macaroni and cheese and pizza every day. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm concerned about your health. I'm looking at the big picture, and guess what? You need to have some protein. You need to have something with vitamins in it, something with some nutritional value. So, you know, you're going to eat what we put in front of you, not because we're mean, not because we're ogres, not because we hate you, but because we actually love you and we know what is best for you. Uh, right. And, you know, the same thing The same thing is true for marriage. Anybody out there that wants to find the perfect spouse, okay, and, and I'll tell you, this is where I went wrong. This is where I went wrong, and I'll confess it. You want to find a perfect spouse, find someone who loves God more than they love you. And you can't mm-hmm. go wrong. Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong. Okay? Um, if you find someone that loves themselves more than they love either God or you, that's a marriage that's doomed for failure. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's <laughs> that's what happened in 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 in, in my case um, you 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 got somebody that you can't reason with you got somebody that you can't um, that that that's not willing to do what they need to do they're not willing to take the responsibilities that they need to take um, that is true love is a give and take thing true love requires sacrifice True love requires sometimes the other person is not going to be happy with you, not going to be happy with your decisions. And all of these things require 
obedience. They all require obedience. They all require humility. Well, what is the first hallmark of Protestantism? All right. and I'm it, protesting and all your version back, of Christianity. I want to do a different one. Right, and it all goes back to the first Protestant, Lucifer. I will not serve. It all goes mm-hmm. back to him. That's where this that's where the spirit of rebellion comes from. Right. And Lucifer's one the first one that got, you know got worship of God off track basically, you know. Right. And as I recall it didn't go very well for him. Right. So, <laughs> And, so, and he's been mad at God um, ever since. <laughs> right, right. It, it didn't go very well for him. Um, it hasn't really gone very well for him since then. So why would you want to to emulate that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you've got these 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 you know bedroom uh, Bible scholars who believe they can pick their Bible up off their not. Their their nightstand and outdo Thomas Aquinas. That's basically what we've got, and it's 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 uh, it goes back to to Lucifer. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. I can decide for myself what is right and wrong. I can decide for myself what I'm going to follow. Well, that didn't go very well for Lucifer. It didn't go very well for Adam and Eve. It didn't go very well for Dathan and Cora. I can I can give a hundred examples, um, and it, your personal testimony didn't go very well for me when I got up course in my life. The times when I tried to follow my own will didn't go very well for me, and um, but they do have trouble with this idea of a, of a of an institution being fully human and fully divine at the same time. They have a difficulty with that, but we have a model. Jesus was our model, fully human and fully divine. And mm-hmm. it's incomprehensible that sinful human beings can cooperate in the work of God. And, and, and people say that, well, how, how could sinful human beings cooperate in the, will, in, in the work of God? Well, how about childbirth? Sinful human beings cooperate with God in the making of a human being. Right. Now, why God endowed human beings with with that awesome power to 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 procreate, to cooperate with God in the in the creation of a human being? Why God uh, gave us that power is difficult for me to comprehend, but it's fact. He did. Mm-hmm. And blessed to cooperate with God to expand His creation in the world. You know, it takes a man and a woman and God to make a baby and to make a marriage. Right. And when and we keep God at the center of our marriage, that... it works much better. Right. And then when you think of the awesome awesomeness of that gift. Think mm-hmm. about the arrogance that we show as as a as a race of human beings when we throw that gift back into space by murdering our unborn children. 
by mm-hmm. celebrating um by celebrating perversion, by celebrating the perversion of this of this awesome gift of the human sexuality that was that was given to us to create life. And and we have all these parades, all these perversion parades and, and and blasphemy in God's face at in the face of, of this awesome and tremendous gift that he didn't have to give us that he entrusted us with. Can you and your wife create an immortal being? A being that's going to live forever. Can you imagine? And so many people think of that as a disposable thing. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and 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 I and I I really believe that this whatever feels good, do it. Whatever I want to do. Um, although they'll never admit it, I believe that this that this culture, the slippery slope of this culture, started. In 1517, with, with with the Protestant revolt, because once you open up Pandora's box, you can't get the cover back on. And mm-hmm. and the essence of the Protestant revolt was, I can decide for myself what's right. It wasn't it wasn't new, it wasn't anything new. It was it was fall of Lucifer and the angels revisited. It was the fall of Adam and Eve revisited. It was the fall of Dathan and Korah revisited. It was just repackaged and presented in a new way. But it's the same sin. It's the same sin of disobedience. I can decide for myself. I don't have right. to listen to anybody. Mm-hmm. And and w- why would we think for a second that that wouldn't lead to the madness that we're now experiencing in our world? And it can. is there any other way we can describe it? <laughs> the world we live in now, except complete madness. Yes, there's a lot of insanity out there, and uh, and Luther thought that the Bible was so clear that you know anybody could read it and understand it. But um, and he assumed everybody would come up with his understanding of the Bible. But by the end of his life, you know, he realized that you know not everybody understands the Bible the way. He does, and he says, you know, every plowboy and milkmaid, you know, now has their own theology, and right. And he said, we're going to have right. to go back to the church councils to find out what's right. <laughs> it's like yeah. you left that, and you know, you already had that wisdom available to you, and uh, when people decided they could well, figure it out better on their own, they got you off know, track. Last night, well, I did a. Last night I did a show. I presented a show on Medjugorje last night. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it or not. Um, uh, no, not last night. But, but, oh, this is another one of those examples. It's, it's another one of these examples. Figuring out Medjugorje, you know, I, I spent years and years kind of in that in-between that, oh, I'm not sure, you know, it kind of the messages kind of seem kind of funny, but I'm not sure. I know a lot of people that believe in Medjugorje, so I'm just not, I'm not sure. Once you investigate it, it's clear cut. It's clear cut. And if you don't, even if you don't, you know, investigate all the crazy stuff about the priest being defrocked and excommunicated and exiled from the country by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict, you know, for conjuring up spirits and impregnating a nun and and molesting the the, the Medjugorje pilgrims, just, just 
outrageous stuff. Even if you don't dig into all of that and read all the contradictions of, of the seers and, and all this crazy stuff, you don't have to. All you have to, 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 to know is, okay, have the, have the bishops ruled on this, and what did they say? And the last mm-hmm. ruling on Medjugorje was the 1991 Yugoslav National Bishops Conference. Okay? Twenty bishops in Yugoslavia got together, formed their commission, came up with their binding, uh, and, and it's binding, their binding re- uh, 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 report on Medjugorje, and one of the 20 bishops abstained from the vote, and the other 19 voted 19 to 0 that the apparitions of Medjugorje are false. 19 to 0. That's a pretty resounding vote, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the standing bishop, the first bishop, Bishop Zonic, said that Medjugorje was false. His commission came back. He came with his official statement that it was false. The second bishop, Bishop Parrott, same thing. The third bishop, who is the current bishop of, of Medjugorje, Bishop Pollock, same thing. So now, by a count of 22 to 0, these bishops are saying, Medjugorje is false. It's not worthy of belief. Right. Ken, that should settle it. That should settle it. There really shouldn't be any argument. I don't, I don't care if you saw a rosary turn gold. I don't care if you know somebody that says they thought they saw the sun dance in the sky. Don't care. Bishops have... The bishops have made their position known, and for 32 years, the Vatican has upheld their position and not overturned it. Mm-hmm. This goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about I don't have to be a brilliant theologian. I don't have to be St. Thomas Aquinas. All I have to know is the position of the church. Church tells me this is false. I stay away from it. Church tells me this is true. I follow it. All right. Today is the, right. is the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. This is in large part based on another private revelation of Jesus to Sister Margaret Mary Alico. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, the Church granted that it's worthy of belief. Right. The Church studied it. And granted it worthy of belief. So if I were to choose that I don't believe in the Sacred Heart, but I do believe in Medjugorje, I'm not exercising an opinion or a a freedom of choice within the Catholic Church. No, I'm being disobedient. This one's true. This one's false. So I'm going to follow, I'm going to have a devotion to, to uh, St. Margaret Mary Alico and the Sacred Heart devotion, and I'm not going to follow Medjugorje, not because I want to anger somebody or upset somebody or be smarter than somebody else. Very, very simple, because the church says this is true, this is false. Can, what, what else do we need to know? That's, that ends it, doesn't it? Right. And. And that's why we have the church that looks into, you know, um, 
apparitions or appearances of Mary and things like that to determine whether they're worthy of belief or not and, you know, worthy of devotion. That's why we also have, you know, our uh, authorized saints, you know, this saint is worthy of right. asking for intercession because we have confirmed that this person is in heaven, you know, through two miracles attributed to prayers to that saint. Uh, right. And that's why well, Jesus does... left his authority with his church so that we would have a guide so that we would know what is correct and what is not correct. Right. If we, if we claim to be true, Every time that someone says they saw Mary in her backyard, we become a laughing stock, and we actually become the caricature that some Protestant anti-Catholics make us out to be, that we're a bunch of superstitious flakes that believe every time that somebody says they saw something from heaven. So the Catholic Church has to be very, very careful and studious about these things, Okay. They can't just put their stamp of approval on every time Aunt Betty said she had a conversation with with uh, the Virgin Mary. In the in the blog that I came from, the show that I came from, they had a they had a lady that that would call in every time, and this lady said that she received divine poetry from God. That the poetry was dictated to her directly from God. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know. Can can I prove that that didn't happen? No, I can't. But they were saying it on the air as if it's established fact. As if, wait wait a minute. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't do that. You can say, this woman claims this. This woman believes this. Okay? Mm -hmm. But you can't claim it as proof of a Catholic miracle because the church has never stood by something like that. And she was a sweet lady. She was a, 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 a very, very devout lady. She, you know, died a, a couple of years ago. But so I'm not saying anything against her. I'm saying it, when when you talk about lords, okay, and you talk about people that have that have been instantaneously cured of cancer and tuberculosis, people that have had an 18-inch bone regenerated in their leg instantaneously. Severed, severed limbs reattached and, and regained function instantaneously. You're talking about glorious, unbelievable miracles witnessed by, you know, multiple people, documented. When you talk about Fatima, you talk about 70,000 people who are documented to have seen the sun dance in the sky. When you talk about mm-hmm. Guadalupe, I mean, let's get started on the the, the the miracles of the Tilma of Juan Diego. So right. these are bona fide, undeniable miracles. In Medjugorje, there's not one miracle that's been uh, that's been Vatican approved. There's not one miraculous cure that's been Vatican approved. There's not one medical experiment done on the visionaries that's been Vatican approved. There's not one prophecy that's been fulfilled that's been Vatican approved. They'll still believe it. Why? <laughs> Why? I, I don't understand that. And to me, somebody's got to explain the difference between that and Protestantism. It, it's the same thing. It's I'm going to believe what I want to believe. You know, can 
faith is a whole lot harder when I got to figure it all out myself. <laughs> it's just it's a lot easier when I know who has the answers, and I just need to study and learn those answers and learn it's to believe so I can then see, as Saint Augustine said, rather than see so uh, that I can then believe. And when you've taken that approach in your life, hasn't it worked better that you believe right. in a doctrine first? And then when you study the doctrine that you already believe, then the light comes on and the understanding follows. Right. When you accept the doctrine and then, you know, apply it to your life and then see how well it works out, then you have a – things go much better for you. But if you have to prove it first before you can believe it, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to prove it. And the church provides the guardrails that keep us going in the right path. And, you know, some people point to our church leaders get off the right, that get off the right path, but that doesn't mean that the guardrails are wrong. It means that they got off the path. And right. once you get back on the path, you're on the path to heaven. And the church right. continuously points us back limit. to the path. Right. There's nothing wrong with the speed limit. It's the guy that was going 90 that was the problem. <laughs> the right. speed limit's not the problem. <laughs> it was his refusal to obey the speed limit that caused the accident. Mm-hmm. And and it it's the same it's the same Well, I Ken, I love talking with you and I didn't mean to call in and hijack your whole show, but I get in these conversations. <laughs> it's just such a joy for me. It's just I I could talk for days and days and days and I know um I, I didn't mean to call in the hijack your show with my enthusiasm, so I apologize for that. No problem. Uh, you know, it was great having a discussion with you on a lot of other topics, you know, besides my original topic of baptism. Um, and we covered some of that too. So um, next week I'll, I'll revisit baptism again and hopefully get uh, the rest of the information I was planning on presenting today and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really so enjoy talking with you, you John. What can what Kenny's telling you folks is that next week if I call he's gonna block the call. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not gonna block the call. <laughs> um, you know, it uh it's great to have somebody to, you know, work back and forth with on the air. Yeah, I thoroughly so anyway, enjoyed it. I we're wrapping lo- up the show here. I love being a we Catholic. Got... Yes. It's the the best thing that ever happened to me, and it was the greatest gift that my dad ever gave me. Amen. So thanks for tuning in today, folks. Uh, If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or you have a follow-up question for me, you can send me an email at catholicken, that's catholic with a K, at the fourpersons.com and the number Four is in the fourpersons.com, not spelled out F-O-U-R. Or you can look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Go out and spread the good news. Thanks for tuning in. Amen. Okay. I'm going to end the episode.